Well, good evening and welcome to everybody. It's certainly a great pleasure for my family to be here. And um, so it was interesting to come back here and see how things change and, and, uh, and how things stay the same, too. So um, I want to, first of all, thank you all for all that you've done for us through the years in our church and supporting us and, and encouraging us and providing resources. There's been just a, an amazing amount of assistance that's come from here, and we don't ever want to forget that. So um, I guess I'm not quite as fancy as you guys here. I don't have a carefully crafted presentation that I brought along, so I noticed that it said something about saving the planet up there, so I'm going to try to do my part tonight. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I might, I might have something that I can bring later on to help you give you those visual um, uh, coaching. So, um, my subject this week has to do with uh, studying and reading, interpreting the Bible, and um, this is something that's been uh, a part of my adult life in many ways, probably passed on to me by my father, an interest in God's word and what it says and means. And um, so, especially what I want to address this evening is some of the terms that we uh, use when we talk about the Bible and what it is, what it really is. And then as we go through the week, I want to look at um, how we ought to be reading it, studying it, and interpreting it, and then also living and transmitting it as well. So there's kind of a continuum there um, in that line that I want you to catch. When we start with the Bible, we open it up and we read it, but it has to come into our minds, and it has to grow. The ideas have to penetrate our conscious thinking, and they have to develop into thoughts, um, decisions, um, patterns, habits, lifestyles, and, and then vision also that passes itself on to others. So that's kind of where I want to go with this. Sometimes it's called biblical hermeneutics, but that's really kind of a narrow and... A, a small part, portion of what we're looking at here this week, which is rules for interpreting the Bible. I'll get to that probably maybe Tuesday or Wednesday evening. Tonight what I want to look at is a number of terms. Um, the, the first one is this question of what God's word is. And so I'll just give you kind of a rundown. I suppose many of you are familiar with the Bible. I'm assuming that 99% of this audience has read it and knows pretty much what's there and uh, essentially what's taught about what the Bible is. But just to remind you again, what we have before us, we have 66 texts in the canon of Scripture that are written over the course of uh, roughly 500 or so years uh, by about 35 at least authors, maybe 40, depends on who wrote who. We don't always know for sure. And many of these writers, these authors, were strangers to each other. They might have known of each other. Maybe a few of them actually knew each other. Um, and also from a geographical area that encompasses three continents. So they, they're kind of a disconnected group of people. And many times what you see in other religions, sacred text, is a single author or maybe entirely unknown authors maybe um, simply traditions that have been handed down like oral tradition through the years. So this is kind of a unique situation here that we have before us. A bunch of authors that come roughly from one 
faith, Judaism, and which grew, of course, in the Christianity <clears throat> in the first century. And, and the, this book is assembled as a set that we have before us today um, simply because they were seen as authoritative. And the reason they're seen as authoritative is because of how they, because of the authors, uh, starting with the patriarchs and then the prophets and the apostles. And the reason is stops at the end of sometime in the first century, uh, this, because apostle, apostolic teaching was seen as uh, connected to Christ or coming from Christ and his charge to the original 12 apostles. And so we have um, an orthodox or traditional church teaching that the canon is closed, the canon of scripture is closed. And there have been some who have come along and changed that, uh, but they're not considered part of the orthodox Christian tradition. So, anyway, when, when people look at this, there's often big questions and hang-ups that people develop as they look at just this set of facts that I gave you here now. And I can kind of understand, um, especially as you look at the, the way that the scripture has come to us today in the intervening centuries, like 20 centuries or so, that it was preserved by copyists and translators uh, so it was originally written in Greek uh, and Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. And even the, the, the original work, especially New, New Testament, involved translation from another language like Jesus spoke Aramaic and, his, and, and his, probably his apostles too. And they had to translate it from that into Greek to write it. So there's a lot of whisper down the lane that happens, as they call it. Kind of like the telephone game the children play sometimes. And we know what happens when you put a row of 20 children um, next to each other, give one um, some information at the beginning, tell them to take it to the end, see what comes out at the end. So this has been um, one of the problems that people have had for a number of years, and we'll get to that shortly. And also we want to look at how the Bible is different from other books. Um, it is a book. And originally it would have been published in scrolls, and so it would have been like a set or a box of scrolls. But then when the the codices, as they were called, when, when reams of pages were bound together and then later turns into books uh, were made, then, then they had to make a decision, well, which ones do we bind in and which ones don't? So um, that's how the book comes about that we have today. Um, there never was a whole lot of disagreement about which books to include uh, except for what were widely considered as false teachers in the early church. And so this thing about which books to include and which books not to include is not as big an issue as some people might make of it nowadays, um, simply because so many of the, there, was a, there was a consensus among the early church about which ones had apostolic authority and which ones did not. And that was finalized in um, what we call the Easter letter of Athanasius in about the 4th century but it was widely recognized long before that. And so I'm not really going to get into that very much here. Um, I also want to <clears throat> present and promote here in this course what has often been called a high view of Scripture. And that's because there are contrasting views. There are Christian denominations today that don't even read out of the Bible. And maybe we should put Christian in quotes uh, for those groups um, the Bible takes central authority in our uh, church life. 
and, and our personal lives, and so it should. And, but yet we need to be brushed up on this from time to time. What role is it really taking in our lives on a day-to-day basis? And when we talk about a high view of Scripture, we don't mean a worshiping a book, like we're bowing before it or something. That's not what it means, but it's rather simply taking the whole of Scripture as we have it at face value and treating it as a, uh, something that actually means something, something with authority. And I will also say here, probably the central fact of looking at the Scripture and these terms this evening, that none of this really means anything if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And a lot of work has been done, a lot of really good scholarly work has been done in the last number of decades on the resurrection of Christ. And Paul himself said way back there um, uh, to the church at Corinth that if, the, if Jesus didn't rise, then we're just wasting our time. So uh, let's make that central here. It's the living word. And so we call it the word of God because it comes from the mouth of God. Um, and... As such, it is living because Jesus arose from the dead and is alive today and uh, is, not, is not finished with his redemptive work, is, is continuing. <clears throat> so first of all, the word authority. Authority is a term that we often use to talk about scripture. It, uh, we know what an authority is. Now, maybe people criticize the younger generations today for not knowing what authority is. Uh, so maybe we need to remind ourselves, we're not just talking about suggestions here, or we're not talking about um, this is what I'd like to see, or um, maybe a multiple choice uh, type of situation, or if you don't do it, it might not go real well, but if you do, it might go a little better. We're talking about something a little stronger than that when we talk about the Bible. This is an absolute moral command that's been given. It has that that kind of tone of moral command. That is how you live your life and how you do not live your life. And it is based in law. This moral command is based in law, given, first of all, by the patriarchs. Uh, I guess God gave law to Adam, starting with Adam. But then eventually it was codified in the Mosaic law, and Christ became the fulfillment of that law and is now our law keeper. So it's it's not like the law, God's law, God's command on his people ever really went away. It's still there, just as much in effect. But Christ in the New Testament church era is our law keeper for us. And so the authority stays the same. So the authority of scripture applies to the church uh, and to all of our personal lives as well as individuals. And it has a total reach over all people, places, and times. And it's not like it applies differently in one time than another or to one culture or group than another culture or group. It is a universal authority. So it, it's, um, and, and the re- part of the reason this authority is so strong is because, of, because it comes from God and because he's the creator of all things. And so it's not like there's some place where you can go, where you're away from it, or where it doesn't really apply to you anymore. The authority of scripture is universal, applies to all. Also, it has to do with The authority of scripture has to do with its ultimate power to judge. So in the end, we'll be judged according to the law of God, the the book of um, the law. And I think that probably as Christians, we can say safely that uh, our sins go beforehand to judgment. So we won't have to face the final judgment in the same way that a violator would. 
but we're still judged nonetheless. Uh, whether it's now or later, um, we're still in the same authority. Another term that we use oftentimes is inspiration, and that has to do with how the scripture is transmitted or was transmitted uh, from God to man. And uh, there are, what we can pretty easily see that there are differing ways that this happened with the authors of scripture. It's not always the same. Um, it seems that sometimes God sent a messenger or um, maybe the second person of the Godhead even to give a vision or to speak to someone or, um, you know, there's different ways. Of course, then in the gospel, you have Jesus actually on the earth and teaching directly uh, to the people. So there, and they simply recorded these things. So there are different ways that this, um, different mechanical means by which this happens. But inspiration means that God revealed and gave spiritual support to the authors of Scripture through, primarily through His Spirit. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, the, Peter talked about this. Of course, Peter speaking uh, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, we believe. He said that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And speaking of authoritative scriptures that were given. So what does this mean, moved uh, by the Holy Spirit? Or as they were carried along, some translations say, as they were given uh, this what to write. Or these thoughts or these ideas or these teachings, these responses to people in situations, all kinds of things that, that might be the case in the biblical books. They were given this through God's Spirit. And so it isn't, uh, the reason we hold a high view of Scripture here is because it's not something that they just made up on the spot or they, they just kind of decided, well, this sounds good and maybe I have some precedent from an earlier situation. Uh, they're not just coming up with something that they thought sounded good, but God actually helped them along through his spirit in what to say and how to write. Um, I don't think that this means word for word because... If that's the case, we're pretty stuck because we have it in English and they didn't, it, would, it wouldn't have been given to them in English. They didn't know English back then. So uh, these authors expressed their personalities and their, even their writing skills in, in the writing itself. And uh, so the ideas were given. There are some times like in the, in, in the prophets where it seems like God was speaking directly to the prophets. He said, uh, I got this message from God to give to you, and so then he lays it out. It was directly from God. And, of course, we have the writings of um, the gospel writers where they uh, wrote what Jesus said, which we um, can also safely assume was accurate and inspired on the spot from Christ himself because he did not make mistakes. He he was not uh, given to error. He did not sin. So, yeah, this is not word-for-word transmission, but somehow the Holy Spirit, again, the details of this get a little murky when you get into it really deep, but I think that we can say from what we know from scriptures that these people were moved by the Holy Spirit, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and that it was not something that they came up with on their own. 
And that's what we mean by inspiration. And also we can safely assume that this process has ceased uh, because there is no longer living apostolic authority today. And uh, if, we, if we stray from that, if we go around, away from that, then I think we're making fairly grievous error. There are people who have done this, and I don't want to do a lot of name dropping this week, but I might just mention the Mormon church, for, for instance, who have added um, revelations and believe that that can continue, as a matter of fact. And we, we just um, can't go there. That's, this is no longer happening because there is no longer living apostolic authority. Jesus gave his apostles a specific charge to start this or to inaugurate this portion of the kingdom. And so when that charge was completed by them, then it was then it's um, maintenance or continuation from there rather, rather than initiation. All right, another term is inerrancy. The inerrancy of scripture. And uh, I think for, from what I can see, there wasn't just a lot of, uh, well, there are many centuries where the, the, the inerrancy of Scripture was taken for granted. It seems like in the first couple centuries, there was a lot of attack on apostolic writings. And then it kind of settled in, and there was not much doubt about it till after the Reformation. And especially in the last 150 years or so, this thing has been, and so we really need to talk about this. Uh, what do we mean by inerrancy? And there's even been official statements written up by by um, Christians nowadays to try to counteract some of the, the influence of scholars in the last 150 years or so uh, that try to point out that the Bible's text cannot be trusted because of various problems. So here, let me say a few things here that uh, will get your minds turning. Uh, the original writing is without error. But this does not necessarily apply to copyists and translators because they were humans and given to error. And there are discrepancies um, between the different texts and writings, uh, the the copies. Um, So now you're probably thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what's this man saying here? Well, keep hang on here. We don't even have the original writings the autograms, as they're sometimes called. None of them exist anymore, to our knowledge, anywhere. In fact, the earliest writings that we, earliest copies that we have are from the 2nd century A.D., and they are partial copies. So now you're probably thinking, oh, boy, we're really in the dark. You know, the Muslims have told us for a long time now that your Bible is corrupted. It was passed on through the years. It's changed from one hand to another hand, and one language to another language, and you can't even believe your Bible anymore because it got so messed up along the way. Okay, well, let me see if I can help you out here, and you're, if you're getting a little foggy by now. Uh, there are, I'll give you some numbers here. There are several hundred Hebrew copies of the Old Testament, ancient Hebrew copies, and that's really a, a pretty significant number. And that would include the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered about seven years ago. And in the New Testament, of the New Testament Greek, there are about 5,700 copies, ancient copies of Greek writing. So compare several hundred to 5,700, several hundred for the Old Testament, about 5,700, almost 6,000 for the New Testament. 
And so a lot of work can be done on studying ancient Greek manuscripts. And they are from about the first 1,500, maybe 1,200 years. Most of those would be in the first 1,200 years or so of church history. Um, the earliest ones come, like I said, in the second century, and the latest ones would come from before the Reformation. So this is really, really a significant number. <clears throat> so many copies, so many Greek manuscripts. Where are they all? They're all over the world. They're housed in museums and libraries all over the world. And I think there are about 34 or 35 or maybe around 40, depends on how you count it, complete New Testament Greek manuscripts. Totally complete. The rest of them would have portions that are missing because of age or decay or would be simply fragments. Now, so 5,700 copies with about less than 40 of them complete. And so you might be wondering, now, wait a minute. Now, shouldn't we compare these? Yeah, that's what they do. They, they compare these. And just, just also to give you a point of reference here, there are many other ancient writings around, too, from B.C. even, <clears throat> from the Greek uh, writers, say, Homer, or uh, Roman writers like Tacitus, who was a historian, <clears throat> Plato and Aristotle, Greek philosophers, there are ancient writings from them, too. And, there are, and Josephus, uh, who was a Jewish historian. And those, those ancient writers average about 10 copies apiece. Average about 10 copies apiece. So if you look at those numbers, you'll see that the Bible has way more manuscript evidence than any other writer. And it seems like nobody has any trouble believing what Tacitus or wrote or what Plato said. They don't come around and say, wow, I wonder if he even said that. There's only 10 copies of what he wrote. <laughs> nobody seems to have any trouble with that. But somehow they have trouble with the New Testament when it has nearly 6,000 copies. And so much work has been done on these copies of both the Old and the New Testament. And it, it, it is really, really remarkable. It's really, really good work. That's been done on it. And when you, when you put all the thousands and thousands of lines of Greek together and you compare them, everything that we know, even from the fragments, from all these copies, there's 99% agreement between these. There's so little difference between them. It's like a stroke here or a little marking here and sometimes a letter different. Very, very little. And none of them affect any significant doctrine of the Christian church. None of the differences affect any doctrine. There's about 40 lines in the New Testament that differ, or they're not quite sure what the original might have said because of the differences. So, even in some, you might have noticed in modern translations, sometimes they try to make a note in the footnotes that say, well, this verse wasn't in, and this certain, and you know, you might wonder, where did that ever come from? Well, there's a story behind that, but suffice it to say that we really don't need to worry about this issue of of uh, transmission. And that, the, the, the question about transmission is what leads to charges on the issue of inerrancy because they say it's been corrupted through the years. But even the secular scholars, with all the work that's been done in the last number of years, admit now that it's really not worth worrying about because there's such remarkable agreement among New Testament texts. And in the Old Testament... 
Uh, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947, the oldest New Testament texts, or I'm sorry, the newest New Testament texts were from before Christ. Uh, they were uh, very, very old. And so the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were, from, were written by the Essenes. And, and so the, old, the, the earlier texts that they had were quite a bit older. And they figured when they get, the, a lot of skeptics said when this stuff comes out, uh, you know, after we start looking at these scrolls for a while, we're going to find that there were changes through the years. And again, there's almost 100% agreement between the, what was previously thought of as the best Old Testament texts and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written quite a bit later. So what we mean by inerrancy is that the scripture, the original writing is without error, even though we don't have the original writings, we can trust with almost 100% certainty that there hasn't been uh, corruption through the years, even though copyists and translators do make mistakes sometimes. And, and we can only assume that the hand of God is present in all this, in this transmission, because the, you know how it is when you write something down that you heard somebody say, or when you're trying to make a copy of something, they didn't have copiers and and such things back then, but they had to do it by hand. And these, these authors, I mean, I'm sorry, these copyists, oftentimes, if you read about them, they were extremely particular in their work. And if, if there's something wasn't right, they would throw it away and start all over, and it took months and months to complete a, a copy. So, um, and this was largely done by the monasteries, uh, the monks in the monasteries for many centuries. So at least we have that to thank, uh, we have them to thank for that. <clears throat> Another term is infallibility. Have you ever heard about infallibility of the scripture? Uh, the scriptures are infallible, and this is different from inerrant. Inerrancy means that it does not have error, but infallibility means that it cannot have error. And that's because of its divine source. If God is true and God is uh, perfect, then what he says cannot have errors and so infallibility sometimes is lumped together with inerrancy, but it's slightly different in that regard. Also, infallibility applies further in that it applies, it, 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 it connects with authority, the, the idea of authority of the Bible. Because if it's infallible, that means the, the way that it's unfolding, the way that the story continues to unfold through prophecy and so on, cannot, be, cannot come out wrong. And it will the word of God will endure forever and it will stay and it will accomplish its purposes and stay true. And for, for us in our human decisions that we make when the Bible gives us advice, that means the Bible is going to have to be right because it cannot be wrong in the advice that it gives us. <clears throat> Another one is sufficiency. Sufficiency means that what we have in scripture is enough. It is enough for the knowledge of God that we need to have. It is enough to give us Christian practice or to, to teach us how to live. It is enough for what we need to know about church organization and worship. And there are more things that we could add to this list. We don't need um, other sources of information that would somehow make our lives better. Now, there's much work that can be done with scriptures. This, this doesn't mean don't read other books. But 
what we consider authoritative can safely be gotten from God's word, and it is what we need. And finally, the idea of the living word, that it is alive. So, again, this connects somewhat with authority. We look at a book, and we think, hang on, it's a book, all right? It's ink and paper. How can it be alive, or how does this work? that we call it the living word. And I think it was Jesus, yeah, Jesus said in the parable of the sower that the word of God is like the seed that a sower went forth to sow. And you know, it falls on different types of soil and it grows. Well, how does it grow? Did you ever ask yourself that when you put a seed in the garden or in your flower bed, how does it grow? It just grows. There's a germ of life in it. And it grows by itself. You don't have to sit there and pry at it with a screwdriver or help it along. It just happens automatically in your heart. And that's what we mean by the living word. When it comes into our minds, when it enters our conscious thinking, that it begins to do a work in our, in our hearts and minds. It has inherent life that springs forth spontaneously in us if the soil is prepared. And it shows itself in changed lives. You know, when something grows, it gets bigger and bigger. It blooms and it fruits. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Something is happening. It gets better and better all the time. And that's how the word of God can do for us. When it takes root in our hearts, it, it, it does something. It makes a difference, and it shows itself in our lives. That's what we mean by the living word. It doesn't have hands and feet that come and slap us around or a stick that it carries to correct us necessarily, but, what it, but it takes root in our hearts, and it, and it grows and changes us. Uh, for the rest of this week, I want to look at, um, like I said, interpretation and inspiration. I'm, I'm sorry, um, Tomorrow night, I want to look at the, at the relationship aspect of reading the Bible, prayer and meditation, and how that we can talk with God, um, learn from him through his word, what it means to listen and to communicate with him. And, um, and then we'll get into the hermeneutical methods of studying the scripture and exegesis, interpretation, the proper steps to follow, the problems that we have sometimes, the tools we can use. And then finally, also exposition that is communicating truth and applying it to our lives and building vision on it. Um, is, is there any input or any questions or something that wasn't clear? If you want to provide pushback, please feel free to do that. I won't bite your head off, and uh, I'll listen to you. And, and I'd, I'd like to, if you have anything especially that you think would be good to clear up in a public setting, uh, or if you have a question, feel free to ask. Something that you didn't hear right or understand right? Okay, thank you. Um, I think it's about 20 after, so it looks like it's about time to quit. And we'll see you tomorrow evening. <laughs>